following audio is from a sermon series entitled Practicing the Way of Jesus, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there and before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Good to see you guys. It's been kind of a crazy re- week, right? Uh, Tuesday, leading up to Tuesday. I'm just kind of glad the, the advertisements are over with. I think everybody can say, Whew. that's behind us at least for another couple years, which is great. Uh, but, but with this week, moving to the election, there's also been a little bit of, of instability that's resulted. I mean, like there's just been a delayed in the announcement as far as who the next president is. And so there, there's been a little bit of angst. You can kind of feel it like, like we're kind of in limbo, and then, and then how this actually flushes out, how this pans out, like what kind of appeal process, courts, I, I don't even know what that's gonna look like, but I know that the season and what's happening right now can easily make us feel like we're in limbo. It can make us feel um, that we're on uneven ground, that things aren't quite as stable, or, or we don't have that security that we hoped to have, that, that we feel is really necessary for us to operate the way that we are meant to operate. And, and I think that a lot of our city might feel that way, but for Christians, it should be a little bit of a different narrative. You know, politics matter. Like, government matters, but for a Christian, it's a small piece of the puzzle. Because ultimately, we are, we are citizens of, of the United States of America, but ultimately, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And right now, we're in this in-between period where we have dual citizenship, that one day, this earth will fade away, and the new kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, that Jesus is ushering in, will be here in its fullness. And because of this reality of the dual citizenship, Christians ought to feel as if they are always, regardless of the political climate, regardless of life situations and circumstances, whether it's family crisis or whatever, that we should always feel like we are on stable ground, that we are grounded in stability. Because our hope does not rise and fall with politics who holds public office, Our hope does not rise and fall or waver based upon how good things are going in our lives. Everything a Christian can look at and and say whatever's happening is happening under the will and the guidance of the Lord. Because we serve a sovereign king that knows how to take evil 
and work it for good. We know how we serve a sovereign king who can take the worst things and transform it into beautiful things. And when we see that, that gives us a whole new perspective on what's going on in the day in, day out. And that's essentially what Jesus is pointing us to. That's a, that's a reality that Jesus is trying to graft us into here on the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus sits up on a hillside 2,000 years ago talking to a mixed crowd, he has this goal in mind to bring these people into the stability of the kingdom of heaven. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, those who hear his words and do them will be like the wise man who builds his house upon the rock. See, Jesus is offering us stability. Regardless of what storms come, whatever drought may come, stability. And in the Sermon on the Mount, as the kingdom of heaven is being introduced, Jesus is trying to show us here that that the kingdom of heaven isn't just something that happens at the end of the age. The kingdom of heaven isn't something that we just look forward to, that one day everything will be finally made right, and for now we just have to kind of bear down and bear with it until we get to that finish line. Jesus is actually telling us that the kingdom of heaven is here right now, and it's advancing that the kingdom of heaven is breaking through like the sun breaks through on the, the early morning dawn. And in the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon Mount, he's talking about who the kingdom of heaven is for. He's saying, if you are poor in spirit, if you're meek, if you're mourning, if you're hungering and thirsting, the kingdom of heaven is for you. It's an invitation. Jesus said, this is the reality of the kingdom of heaven and you can step into it. It's a very low bar for entry. Do you sense your need? And when you sense that need and you find Jesus, you find everything you need. And now as we move out of the Beatitudes and we're we're talking here in, in, in the following, what follows in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is showing us the code of the kingdom, the rules for living in the kingdom, the dynamics of the kingdom, how the kingdom of heaven works, what it's gonna be like in the new heavens, new earth. He's showing us what this looks like And it's not just this little tweak here and there in our life. What has to happen for us to be fit for kingdom living, to live within the code of the kingdom, is there has to be a profound reorientation to our lives. That our life on a foundational level has to experience a dramatic change. It's so profound. Jesus actually tells Nicodemus, as as, uh, he was a Pharisee, he came to Jesus in the dark of the night, he asked, "What, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, you must be born again a profound reorientation to life. Now this invitation to the kingdom of heaven is working its way backwards. So it's a future reality, but it's happening right now. And so this invitation to the kingdom of heaven is an invitation for us to become fully alive right here and right now. He's inviting us into, Jesus is inviting us into a robust way of living. He's shaking us out of our half-hearted stupor. He's he's waking us up from this zombie lifestyle where we just kind of go from thing to thing in our life, eyes glazed over, doing what we gotta do to get through. And he's inviting us into real, meaningful life. He's presenting to us this picture of the good life. The life that we were made to live, a satisfying, robust, joyful experience. Arrhenius said that the glory of God is man fully alive. 
That there is nothing more glorifying to God when we wake up to this full life. Jesus, I've come to, so that you can have life to the fullest. And so this is what kingdom of heaven life is essentially like. Living into the fullness of life. Now, to be fully alive not only alters the, your eternal destination, but it changes right now. In chapters five through seven, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mountain here, Jesus is drawing out some of the vast implications of what it means to be fully alive. And first place that Jesus notes transformation of being fully alive is within the context of relationships. The first place that you can see if you are actually fully alive, if you're awake to the kingdom of heaven, that you're fully alive is in your relationships because the quality of our life is determined by the quality of our relationships. We're relational creatures. If you have poor relationships, you're going to have a poor quality of life. God has made us to be relational creatures. We're made for, defined in, and flourish within the context of relationships. And we can say that, like, you look through your life and you can see, I, I, I've got some pretty good relationships, right? I hope everybody in this room can say, yes, there are, I've got good relationships. My spouse, love them. It's great. Happily married, I've got a BFF. Right, my siblings, maybe we get along. I don't know, maybe not everybody. But you know, it's like I've got siblings and I get I got things going for me in this category of healthy and good and satisfying relationships. But if you've done any sort of authentic living, then you probably have relationships that are also not good. You probably have relationships that are broken and fractured. Relationships that that if you do an honest inventory of them, where you see hurt and fallout and just a chasm of brokenness within them. Now, we see this in the people that we try to avoid, right? I think everybody has it. People in our lives that we try to avoid because they irritate us, because they bother us, we don't get along, we don't feel compatible with them. Or maybe there's been some kind of conflict that's left you hurt, right? You're wounded, and that woundedness has festered into bitterness and resentment and anger. And not only have you been the victim of this, chances are you've actually been a person who's done hurting, right? You've been the person who's offended. You've been the offender. Because hurt people hurt people. That's just how it works out. That's the economy of relationships under the brokenness of sin is that hurt people hurt people. And what happens when we're hurt, we, we tend to do a couple of things. Um, we either retaliate or reject people when these relationships break up, when they go sour. Now, if you're rejecting somebody, it means that you've probably been hurt, you've been offended, and, and because of that hurt, because of that woundedness, you look at them and you deem that person unworthy for yourself. It's like this relationship can, can no longer go any further because I've been hurt. I, it's like, and by the way, this happens, the more sensitive we become, the more this is gonna happen, the more we sense this kind of hurt right? Even the smallest things might feel like a deep attack against us where we feel, oh, I, I, can't, I can't put up with that person. It's better off if we just cut ties right now. Might be a little remark, and then we assume the worst intentions about it, and then before you know it, that friendship, that relationship has been cut off. And so you have a relational life that resembles uh, a Taylor Swift album, right? Breakup songs, 
It's like, this is over, we're done, we're never getting back together. Like that's what it is, that's, that's kind of the pattern of this life of rejection. Or you can take the Carrie Underwood approach. Get that Louisville slugger, take it to the headlights, dig that key into the side, of that pretty little souped up four wheel drive. You know what I'm saying? What do you do? You retaliate. You get them back where it hurts. You bite back. You lob the insults in return. You talk down about that person on a personal level. And when it happens, like in that moment, like there's something about it that feels satisfying. Oh, yeah, I'm getting them now. You know, that's, that's what you deserve. It's only fair. That's what they did to me. And so it's like, and we can kind of feel justified in it, right? Because we can go back to Old Testament scriptures say, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Right? I'm getting back at you. I'm getting what's mine. Now, if you're sitting there thinking about your relationships, doing an inventory, maybe you can see where you have some of these patterns surfacing in your life. I know that as I think back on this, I have more relationships that fit one of those two categories than I would like to admit. And I'm sure you feel the same way. And if you're not necessarily thinking that, then, then I think it's one of two things. You either lack a relational breadth. It's like every, all of my relationships are fine because one, you only are friends with people who think like you and act like you, so you lack diversity in relationships. Or two, you just are okay with a shallow level of relationship. You don't have really any depth to your relationships, meaningful, heart level, I know you, you know me at a deep core level. Now there's also another alternative to this, is that you have these inner compulsions to reject or to retaliate, right? It's like, it's something that kind of is inside of you, but instead of acting on those things, you just sort of repress it. You, you shove it down, you pack it down deep in your heart, and so you get so good at being two-faced, where you can be really polite and really nice to somebody at the face level, face interaction, but as soon as you walk away, it's like you got nothing but bad things to say about that person. You just get really good at having these, uh, this two-faced, this pent-up feelings, which can be disastrous because eventually, like, that pressurizes, right? It's like shaking a, a bottle of Pepsi. It's gonna blow the top eventually. See, this relational dysfunction is our default. Not only is it our default, but it's unfulfilling and incompatible with the kingdom of heaven. Relationships in the kingdom of heaven do not work like this. In fact, if you bring that, that sort of approach to your relationships in the kingdom of heaven, you will ruin the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus offers us a new way to do relationships. He, he, he offers us a vision of relationships that leverages them, not, not the people themselves, not in a, a utilitarian way, but takes the relationships that we have and elevates them to a place of maximum potential, maximum satisfaction, where he ends this debilitating cycle of repression, of retaliation, of rejection, and he brings us into freedom. Now, how does Jesus bring into freedom relationally? Well, he does it by giving us a new code for the kingdom. And when I talk about a code for the kingdom, I'm not talking about like an access code that you punch the code in the door and you get in. I'm talking about like a rules for life. If you read Jordan Peterson, 12 rules for life, right? It's like what the Benedictine monks, people who have had any sort of... Um, 
society where this is how we operate. It's a code. It's, it's the dynamics of living. And so Jesus is offering us a new dynamic, a new code for life that we would understand that we would operate by. These are the codes for the kingdom. Now, it might seem paradoxical that when Jesus laid out these codes, which are essentially rules for life, it seems paradoxical that the way into freedom is by rules. And this is one of the things that Jordan Peterson has done brilliantly. I don't know if you follow him, but he shows us how rules are actually really helpful for leveraging ourselves to getting the maximum potential out of life because what rules do, well, let me back up. There's nothing more terrifying than a society without rules. Like, read Lord of the Flies. Anarchy takes way, right? There, there's nothing more scary than an unrestrained human being. So rules are good. Now, you might say, well, rules, aren't, aren't they restrictive? Well, yeah, rules by nature are restrictive. But here's the thing. When you have good rules, when you have just rules, when you have the best kind of rules, these guidelines, they, they, they function as a safety barrier, it's like a fence. Like, I used this illustration a while back. When we moved into our old house, we just moved into a new house, so this doesn't really apply because we don't have a fence. But, but when we moved into our, our, our previous house, one of the first things that I did was put up a fence so our kids could play in the yard. Say, hey, you could run in here. You can do whatever you want. Just stay within these guidelines. Stay within the barriers because right in here, this is where you can do what you want. This is where you can hit full stride. This is where you can do, you know, play ball, do all that because it keeps you out of the danger area. It keeps things from going sour quickly. Here's a guideline. Here's a way to live that leads to your flourishing. That's what good rules do. They don't feel restricting. They offer us the ability to step into flourishing. And so that's what these rules are like for Jesus. He's showing us this rule, this code of kingdom living gives us a rule for human flourishing. These are the guardrails to the good life, that if you live within these boundaries, within this, this guardrail, things will probably go well for you. That doesn't mean that you won't get beat up and bruises here and there, but in general, like this is, this is the path that you wanna operate on because there's the good life here. Now, as Jesus gives us the rules for, for human flourishing here, I think this is incredible to see because what he's, he's providing us with is, is the ability um, to see the Lord's prayer manifested when we say on earth as it is in heaven, that because of these guardrails, because of this boundary, we can see how this actually would play out and we get a taste of heaven now as we're on earth. And so here is specifically how Jesus speaks into kingdom relationships. Here's how our relationships on earth become more heavenly. He, look, he says this in verse 20 of chapter five. Excuse me, verse 21. You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, we need to step back here before we dive into the specifics here because five, excuse me, seven times in chapter five, Jesus repeats this phrase, you have heard it said, but I say, 
It's very important to notice. It's like when you're doing your Bible reading, that's one of the things that, that when you read big chunks of scripture together, you can see these patterns, and there's some continuity here as we read. Now, the question is, what is Jesus doing when he says, you have heard it said, but I say. Now, we might look at this initially and say, well, Jesus is, he's providing a brand new way of living. In fact, that's a, what some of the original audience when he's preaching on the mountainside, what they thought. They thought that Jesus was setting up a brand new religion in their polytheistic society, very much like the society we live in, that says there are multiple ways to heaven and Jesus is just providing a new way to get to heaven now. But Jesus said in the previous chat, or excuse me, the previous section of scripture in verses 17 through 20, he says that he did not come to abolish the law. He didn't come to get rid of it. He didn't come to throw it out and say this is no longer valid. He said, I have come to fulfill the law. Jesus shows there's some continuity, not just some, but a lot of continuity, and almost, I, I, don't, I can't even express how continuity is, con, I don't know what that word is, how much continuity there is between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's like perfect transition. You know, if like you're d- doing drywall, right? You can see usually from, from one panel of drywall to the next, well, it's finished perfectly. Jesus, oh, look, see the continuity here? Now, when you look at this, and you, and you okay, so he's not replacing the law, and you look at what he's saying here, you know, don't murder, and then he says, well, if you're angry, if you're insulting, if you're, um, if you're making character judgments about somebody, well, it seems like Jesus is just upping the intensity of the rules, right? Like he's just making the bar go higher and higher and higher. So he, we think, okay, he came to fulfill the law, but in the sense of filling the law, so it goes up, 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 up. He's heaping up the law, but that's not what Jesus is doing. He isn't intensifying the rules. See, what Jesus is doing is exposing the heart of the commandments that God had given his people initially. This isn't a new thing. I mean, it's, it's articulated in a new way, but the desire that God had in the commandments was not just so that people wouldn't kill each other, but that there would be relational unity, that there would be compatibility between his people. So Jesus is exposing the heart of God's commands. Now, in this verse here, he said, you've heard said it to those who, have old, who were of old, you shall not murder. Jesus is uh, articulating, he's, he's quoting the sixth commandment. Now, just to put it in context, when God gave his people the Ten Commandments, remember what happened. He had delivered them out of of an oppressive society. They were slaves in Egypt, that they were under these harsh and strict guidelines, these rules that they were forced to live by, and God delivers them out of that, and in delivering them, he doesn't say, hey, you can do whatever you want now. God gives them a new code to live by. He gives them these Ten Commandments, guardrails for flourishing, and so he, he gives them after being, and, and listen, here's what, these 10 commands, we, like, well, we might look back and say, oh, those seem so, so, so restrictive. Well, for the people who are coming out of Egypt, that was liberty, right? It's like, now we only have 10 commandments to go by? It's like, this is incredible. This would have been a, a, a way of a freedom for these people. They would have experienced the joy and, and the satisfaction of life, living life in this new way. Because these were good rules to live by. Now, at the top of the list here, in the top 10 at least, you know, one of the good rules to live by is don't kill people. Pretty solid, right? In fact, every just society has this rule. Don't kill people. And at face value, it's pretty easy to, to keep, right? I, like, I hope, I don't, at least that I know of, nobody in this room has actually killed anybody. 
But the crazy thing is that there's probably times where we've felt like it. Like we, we felt that moment of like, oh boy, there's something going on in my heart that if I let this just run loose, this is not gonna go well. And it might seem like, it might seem like it's a solution. Because back then that was a reality. Like you got beef with somebody, take it to them. Knock them out. That's a way to, to deal with the problem. But the reality is that, that God is showing his people that only compounds the problem because verse 21 tells us that to murder, to kill somebody leaves you liable to judgment and there's penalty. So it's not like you get, you get it scot-free, like you, you do what you want to do and then there's no consequences for it. Like there's judgment that's await you. And it's just like what happens even before the Ten Commandments come. When, when Cain and Abel are, are giving their sacrifices, Cain gets really upset with Abel and eventually kills him. And, and, and God says to Cain, hey, where's your brother? He's like, I'm not, I'm not my brother's keeper. Knowing God, God's not a dummy. He knows that Cain's killed Abel. And God says to Cain, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. See, bloodshed requires answers. There's justice that must be paid whenever there is shed blood. And so we might look at this and say, okay, the line in the sand is do not murder. So, you know, like if you're like me or my kids that know, okay, here's the rule. I just want to see how far up to that I can get before I actually break the rule. It's like, well, th that means that there's all kinds of dysfunction that can happen before you get to the point of actually killing somebody. So, so that's a line, don't cross it, right? That's a good life. But Jesus is saying, actually, there's a lot of dysfunction that can happen before you get to the line. A lot of, a lot of things that can go wrong and be debilitating to you and your relationships before you get to that point. It's like a doctor who, who treats a patient and, and his treatments impair that person rather than healing them. And they can shake it off and say, well, at least I didn't kill him, so I must not be doing anything wrong. Like their, their treatments are actually, even though they didn't kill him, there's still problems there. That's not flourishing. In fact, th th this is where um, Hippocrates gets this, this concept that's still around in the medical world of do no harm. It comes from, it's, it's derived from the sixth commandment. Don't kill. Like don't do harm. And once again, here we see Jesus, as he's talking to this audience that's mixed of, of both Jews and Gentiles, he has this mixed audience, he tailors his Sermon on the Mount to this dual audience. And as he does this, he expands the worldview. So in one sense, Jesus speaks and he validates the philosophy of, of the Greco-Roman world. At the same time, he acknowledges and endorses the commands of the Torah, but then he builds out with more nuance and with a superior authority. In fact, people walk away from Jesus preaching on the Sermon on the Mount and they can't believe how he teaches with authority. And so Jesus says here in verse 22, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus is telling us right here to live the good life relationally means that you have to do more, or I guess do less, than kill somebody. Right? To, to live the good life entails more than the absence of murder. Jesus is saying here, do no relational harm. No anger, no insults, no harsh criticisms, no character assassinations. 
And what Jesus is trying to show us here that, that these things here, the anger, the insults, the character assassinations, those are the seeds of hostility that grow into murder if unchecked. So each one of those things that if it, it's allowed to run its course will eventually compound and compound and compound and grow and grow and grow until it gets to the point where murder seems like the most logical next step. See, the origin of murder lies within these things. Anger, resentment, bitterness, harsh criticisms. See, murder is rejection and retaliation worked out to its fullest extent. That's why scholars, biblical scholars look at this and say, listen, if you are angry at your brother, if you're insulting someone else, if you, if you are making character judgments on somebody, you are committing murder in your heart. What is that? That, that? To do that is basically to condemn somebody. To say, listen, you're not fit. You don't measure up. You broke this relationship. Condemned. Out. Canceled. Boom. Done. We're cut off. Or I'm going to lash back out. Jesus denounces this condemning attitude, this condemning tendency that we have towards others because a condemning attitude leaves us in a place of condemnation. See, Jesus says to be angry toward a brother leaves us liable to judgment. To be angry at a brother leaves us liable to judgment. The same consequence of murder is connected to that of anger. But then there's this graduated intensity of judgment. So with insults or with, with um, verbal attack, this anger now is induced into outrage and it carries a consequence that, that is put out before men. So, so you stand before the council, but even more than that, as it works itself out externally, you know, even if it doesn't work itself out externally and, and you, you lash out in anger or you insult somebody, God still sees the heart. Hebrews 4.13 tells us that, that everything is laid bare before God. He sees it all. And so whatever's going on in your heart, whatever labels you put on somebody else in your heart, those are equally condemning as actually lashing out in anger. It makes you liable to the hell of fire, that when you stand before God, you stand condemned. Now, what's alarming is to see how easily we find ourselves doing this, right? How easy it is for us to drift into anger, into insults, Right, into personal attack, character assassinations, how easy it is. We start grumbling about people and labeling those people, that person. I can't believe they think like that. I can't believe they did that. So we get anger and bitterness towards these folks until we either are left with the option of, of well, I mean, we got those three options of, or we suppress it, we, we repress it, we retaliate, or we just cut off, reject them. That, that's like the only three options that we have, and that first one of repressing eventually is gonna bleed into one of the two other ones. And what this exposes is that in our relationships, we are not yet fully alive, that there's still part of us that has not been brought into the new kingdom of heaven. There's still part of the old man, the old ways of this world, the principalities of darkness that are functioning in this earth that we're carrying over with us that Jesus wants to actually put to death. And so he exposes these things and invites us into a kingdom-integrated life where all of our relationships have these dynamics of the kingdom that are being worked out through them. 
And so Jesus goes on and he gives us a picture of what relationships that are fully alive look like in verse 23 through 26. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now what he's saying here, there's this this pattern that if you demand justice and you yourself are in an unjust place, that it's just gonna perpetuate this cycle where you yourself are gonna reap the consequences that you are uh, 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 prescribing to somebody else. Like if you demand justice, then it's not gonna go well for you because you too stand condemned. See, the only way to break this cycle is through reconciliation. That's the only way to cut through the hurt, the issues, the turmoil, and it doesn't mean those things won't arise. Like, you will, Jesus says, there will be trouble. Relationally, you will have trouble in this life. But because of the gospel, we can move towards them in reconciliation. See, the gospel allows us to move toward each other, not apart. This is what kingdom relationships look like. Even though we might have offended each other, we can move toward, not apart. We can mend. And and Jesus places this premium on the horizontal relationships where he doesn't say, like, I think one of the cop-outs that Christians have is like, well, it doesn't matter, I'm good with God, so everything else is gonna work itself off. Jesus here puts a premium on these horizontal, interpersonal relationships that if you are at odds with a brother, before you go to the altar, before you give your sacrifice to God, take care of that business first and then come back. See, relationships, interpersonal relationships matter to Jesus. That's why I think the church ought to be the most relationally healthy place in the city. Yet so often the church has become this broken cesspool of unhealthy relationships. You see churches sp- splitting off and breaking off because somebody did something bad, somebody said something wrong, somebody got offended and is like, I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. But Jesus provides this new vision, this, this reality that we're, relationships are shaped by the kingdom of heaven, these dynamics that are available to us, that, that supersedes, that goes beyond the brokenness and the hurt that's caused by our sin where we can actually make amends, where we can actually come to terms and even love each other. In fact, it's not just if you're the one who's done the hurting where you, are, you realize what you've done to somebody else and, and you pursue them, but actually in Matthew 18, he gives the victim permission that if you've been sinned against, go to your brother one-on-one. Say, hey, you've sinned against me. I'd like for this to be made right. It doesn't feel right. And you might win him over that way. Jesus gives this whole sort of protocol of how this works out in relationships where both the victim and the, the, um, the offender have this ability to move toward reconciliation and make amends. This is what it looks like. This kind of relationship is what it looks like to have relational righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees and the scribes that Jesus told us about in verse 17. Like, the Pharisees and the scribes could get away with, oh yeah, everything's good because I'm, I'm good with God, yet there's all kinds of dysfunction between them. Jesus says, no, relational righteousness is, is vertical and horizontal. Horizontal. 
And no matter how hard we try, we cannot white knuckle our way to this relational righteousness. The, the pull of sin is too strong and too fierce. It's so far outside of our default tendency to do this because what we resort to is to blame, to hide from our sin. And we might repress this momentarily, but eventually it's going to explode. It's gonna push forward. And the only way that our interpersonal relationships can look like this, have the righteousness that, that supersedes the scribes and the Pharisees, is if we enter into a relationship with Jesus. If we can see how Jesus perfectly fulfilled what he's calling us to do as his people. Now think of this, have you ever thought of how entitled Jesus would be to be mad at us for all eternity? Like Jesus has every right to look at us and to dismiss us, to retaliate, you know, because here's the deal, every time you've sinned, every single one of your failures is not only, there's not only horizontal uh, repercussions of that, Psalm 51 tells us when David sins, he commits adultery, he says to God, against you and you alone have I sinned. What he's pointing to, now there's a lot of people who are lying in the wake of his brokenness and the sin, but ultimately the primary place of hurt was between he and God. Every time we sin, it's a personal attack against Jesus. It's, it's kind of pulling the bricks out from beneath this relationship that we have with him. And Jesus could look at us and say, fine, you want to let it crumble? You want it to fall apart? You want this chasm to grow wider and wider and wider? He said, have it your way. He doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't reject us. Jesus doesn't retaliate. He doesn't lash out. He doesn't erupt with anger and shake his fist at us. Why can't you get it together? He doesn't dismiss us as fools, though he would be justified in doing so. What Jesus does is he moves toward us. He sees the brokenness, he sees the hurt, he sees how we have made relationship, not only with others, but with him, futile, hard, impossible even. It's his relentless love for us that, that endures the attack, that endures the hurt of our sin. So we could say that Jesus has thick skin. He moves towards us to make amends. He reconciles us to himself at his own expense. He doesn't wait for us to come and say, you know, I've done it wrong. I'm gonna make it up to you. Jesus says, listen, I'll lay my life down for you. I see the wrong you have done. I see the dysfunction in your relationships with me, with other people. I'm going to lay my life down for you and pay the price. See, our sin had Jesus crucified, yet, okay, so like, his blood is on our hands, but, but unlike the blood of Abel that cries out from, for justice, right, vengeance, the blood of Jesus cries out to us that we are forgiven, that there's this, this, the slate has been wiped clean. What he could do is call for condemnation, but Jesus calls for us to be made right and reconciled. We're not condemned, we're not, we're not pushed aside, we're loved, we're brought in. Now when you experience the gospel like this, it changes you at your core. This is the only way to kill the, the root, the seed of murder, right? The anger, so that you can fully come alive, is to experience a relationship, this unilateral love, this unilateral um, laying down of self that Jesus has towards us that would open us up, that would, would bring us into the good life so that we could live and mirror and imitate him. This is how we are made right. See, when we're, when we're made fully alive in the gospel, our relationships change. Jesus has a tremendous impact. 
on a relationship. So he makes you relationally buoyant. Yeah, sure, the waves are gonna crash against you. Sure, there's gonna be conflict. Sure, there's gonna be turmoil that comes down the pike, and you're gonna have those people that, that may rub you the wrong way. But the gospel gives you some buoyancy to pop back up. Right, you're not just thrown all the way around. Right, you're anchored. So as I close here, here's four things that the gospel gives us in relationships. That, that allows us to live into these kingdom dynamics. First of all, the gospel gives you a sense of humility. See, the gospel tells me that I'm worse than I thought, but far more love than I ever dared to dream. So in, in one sense, I'm freed up to admit that I've done things wrong, that I've sinned against other people, that I've hurt people. And so I have this freedom to confess my sins to God and to one another without fear of condemnation, right? Because God told me that because Jesus was pushed out, I'll never get pushed out. I only get brought in further and further into the heart of Christ. And so I don't have to shift blame onto other people. I don't have to minimize my sin. I can freely and humbly confess my sin. Sometimes it means owning your sin and then a little more, right? Like I feel like, oh, that's my sin to own and that's their sin. Well, the gospel actually frees me to confess and to own sin that maybe isn't necessarily mine, that I can take responsibility for stuff that I don't necessarily feel like is mine to own so that I can move forward in a relationship toward healing. Number two, the gospel gives you thick skin so you're not as easily offended. Nobody had thicker skin than Jesus. Nobody had more of a reason or excuse or, or opportunities to be offended than Jesus. Yet Jesus endured it all. Like Jesus walked around with a bonehead disciple named Peter, right? Judas, his betrayer was, he had all kinds of reasons to be offended. And not a, let alone you and me, he doesn't get offended. He has this thick skin. He's long-suffering. He's charitable with us. And his grace, and when it's at work in our lives, allows us to have this thick skin as well where we can give people, be charitable towards people and not rush to conclusions about what they meant by that. Right? To give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. We can have some thick skin. Number three, it means that we forgive generously because in the gospel, I am forgiven generously. See, when I've been sinned against, I might feel entitled to withhold forgiveness until that person makes themselves, until they kind of elevate themselves to a place of deservedness, but Jesus doesn't do that with us. Jesus freely gives us forgiveness before we even jump through the hoops or make ourselves a little bit better. Jesus offers this forgiveness generously, and it's important to see that, that forgiveness precedes reconciliation. Like if you want to have a relationship that's mended and restored that actually goes beyond what it was initially before the turmoil, before the brokenness happened, you have to enter into forgiveness. There has to be that forgiveness in your heart. And we see how Jesus gives us forgiveness. Number four, because of the gospel, we can believe in the reconciliatory power of grace. That there is a raw power in the gospel that actually brings us who were once enemies of God in his, as his beloved children. That is the power of the gospel. And if that works out on a cosmic level between me and God, how does that work out on this horizontal level between me and my brothers and sisters in Christ? There's this power in the gospel that actually pulls us into the kingdom dynamics. So not only does Jesus show us how relationships in the kingdom of heaven work, 
Jesus gives us a supernatural power in the gospel to live it out now, right now, on earth as in heaven. And my vision for us at Sacred City Church is to be a church of excessive righteousness, a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. It's not just this vertical relationship, but, but have healthy relationships between one another, that we have deep and meaningful relationships, and not just like because there's a lack of conflict, but we can actually work through our conflicts together. That Republicans and Democrats can come together and say, we're part of the body of Christ. We might disagree. That, that people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, that people from different racial and ethnic backgrounds come together and say, listen, we are one together and there's this reconciliatory power that happens in the gospel. It gives us a power to view each other with charity, with grace, and with love and affection for one another because Jesus has that for us. My vision for us is to be that kind of people that our relationships would be marked by the gospel of, of reconciliation and affection. See, this is what it looks like for us to be fully alive. I am not content with living these half-hearted lives. I'm not content with being a zombie and just kind of going through the, the motions and, and, and you know, shallowness and relation. God is bringing us into the depths of joyful, joy-producing, satisfying, meaningful relationships, and the only way it's possible is if we have Jesus as the center, Jesus as the foundation. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, fully trust on his name. Christ is solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Father, we thank you for the words of Jesus. We thank you that he's given us a code of conduct, rules for living that not only make things go right, but actually elevate us to our maximum potential, that bring us into the fullness of life. Help us to live into that. Help us to die to our sin and to self and live to righteousness, that you would give us a righteousness, first of all, in Christ that calls us holy and blameless and set apart people for his own possession, but that would transform us from the inside out, that our relationships would mirror that of the grace and the love and the long suffering that Jesus has for us. Make us this city on a hill, a light that cannot be hidden. Change us, change our relationships for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're gonna come to the Lord's table now. The Lord's table will be open for baptized believers. We'll we'll bring the elements to you. Um, If you would like to receive, just extend your hands and we'll place them in in your hand for you. Um, If you have not accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, today I just wanna invite you to do that. I want you to see the love that Jesus has for you, the lengths that he went to, to reconcile you toward the Father that you could be brought in, that you could experience this fullness of relationship. And as we take this Lord's Supper, let it be the power of Christ working within us that compels us to live as Christ lives toward us with grace and affection, long-suffering and patience. 